Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 17, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. Well, not only is it St. Patty's Day today, but for those of you residing in the California State Senate District, those of you who received the special election sample ballot today, it's election day. You know your civic duty. If, it's, if the ballot's not already cast, polls are open today until 8. Now for the show. Josh Grill, the new director, brand new director, education part of UCI's Mind to talk about the latest and the greatest at the center and the importance of clinical trials. Then LA Times editorial writer and Irvine's own Scott Martell will launch here, ahead of all the other media outlets, his latest tome, The Madman and the Assassin, The Strange Life of Boston Corbett, The Man Who Killed John Wilkes Booth. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short station break. Thank you, everybody, for staying tuned. Welcome back to the show. What's that sound we're hearing? It's the buzz of clinical trials chipping, narrowing the distance toward the holy grail of the cure for Alzheimer's disease. And in the thick of that is my first guest, Dr. Josh Grill, brand newly appointed faculty member in the Institute for Memory Impairments and Neurological Disorders at UCI. It's also known as MIND and the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and the P Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior. Director of Education for the Mind, Dr. Grill is also the Associate Director of the UCI Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and its Outreach, Recruitment, and Education Corps. He completed his bachelor's in psychology and zoology minor in neuroscience at Miami University in Ohio and earned his doctorate in neuroscience in the Department of Neurobiology and Anatomy at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Recently appointed to his UCI post from previous work at UCLA, Josh Grill currently focuses his research on clinical trials across the spectrum of Alzheimer's disease. He's appeared on media outlets around the country. Most recently, you may have heard his take up on the benefits of music and connecting with those with serious memory loss from dementia. Josh Grill joins me in studio today. It's my pleasure to have him on. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Josh. Thank you very much, Claudia. It's very nice to be here. Well, I had no idea that when I first saw you last week, you were three days in, so you are hitting the ground running from UCLA. How, how is it that UCI could nab you from the uh, UCLA um, Center for Neural Research? Well, I'm honored to be a part of UCI's MIND and the ADRC. Uh, it's a fantastic group of investigators doing a lot of uh, exciting and important work. And it's uh, a real privilege to join this outstanding team that is nationally and internationally known for leadership in Alzheimer's disease as a field. So it's, it's really a great honor for me to join this team. Uh, and as you mentioned, it was important to me to hit the ground running and get to work oh. right away. 
We study what we believe is the most important disease that uh, we face as a society today. So there's really no time to waste. And it's been about 100 years now since Dr. Alzheimer's has located what was going on in the brain. He diagnosed that one woman, and I can't remember, what's her name again? This her name was August D., August Dieter. Okay. Uh, and you're, you're correct. It's been about 100 years since Alzheimer first described the case of August D., who had a peculiar disorder of the cerebral cortex that we now have come to know as Alzheimer's disease. Um you know, a hundred years later, we're we're still figuring some things out. But as you allude to, we've made really important progress, and we think this is a an exciting time to be studying this disease, as we're on the cusp of making substantial differences in the way we diagnose and importantly treat this disorder. Well, the message that I've been getting the last couple of years at the annual Alzheimer's meetings in the fall that you present, we'll give everybody all those dates to save at the end of the interview, but, but what I, my takeaway from several of them was this whole intellectually honest point that none of the drugs have proven to be that helpful, that you said they, they're sim they deal with the symptomatic aspect of dementia, but once you take the, the pharmacy away and you've got, you've got the same result at the end of the, the washout period of those drugs, that they look exactly like where the person with the placebo is at that point. So there, now, though, at UMass General in Boston, it's a rather large study sponsored by the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly, the National Institutes of Health, and the Alzheimer's Association. Tell us about the anti-amyloid treatment in asymptomatic Alzheimer's study. It's also known as the A4 study. That's correct. Well, I think first you hit on a por an important point that um, we do have some drugs that are approved by the FDA for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. And one way that we can divide uh, treatments and potential treatments for Alzheimer's disease is into two categories, those that help patients with the symptoms that they're dealing with, what we would call symptomatic therapies, and those, and, and really we're looking for drugs that fit the second category, those that actually slow the course of the disease and if started early enough, prevent people from reaching severe dementia, or if started even before dementia begins, prevent people from having impairments to function, having serious memory problems meeting the criteria for dementia. So those we would call disease-modifying therapies. And as yet, there are no FDA-approved disease-modifying therapies, but there are a number of very promising candidates that are in clinical trials now being tested in patients with this disease to see if, in fact, we can slow the course of Alzheimer's disease. The trial you allude to, the A4 trial, is um, probably our most aggressive trial we've ever attempted, uh, and it, it indeed tests a medication that we hope can slow the course of the disease. But there's also growing consensus that it may be important to intervene as early as possible. And the A4 trial is the earliest we've ever tried to intervene with a potentially disease-modifying drug for Alzheimer's disease. So in the A4 trial, we are testing whether a new medication, uh, specifically an antibody against a protein that accumulates in the brain of people with Alzheimer's disease, beta amyloid, can delay the onset of memory problems in people who we believe are at increased risk to suffer memory problems caused by Alzheimer's disease. So as the title suggests, the anti-amyloid treatment in asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease trial, 
Um, this study is enrolling people who have elevated levels of brain beta amyloid. And again, beta amyloid is the protein that accumulates in the brain of someone with Alzheimer's disease. It's the protein that Alzheimer himself saw in the brain of August D when he characterized her brain after she passed away 100 years ago. Importantly, we also know that some people will die with elevated levels of brain amyloid and normal memory. So this is not a diagnostic tool. It doesn't necessarily tell us who has Alzheimer's disease and who does not, nor does it tell, does it tell us who will get Alzheimer's disease and who will not. Nevertheless, the early indications and the early studies tell us that among people who have elevated brain amyloid, though normal memories, compared to those who do not, there's a greater risk for someday getting memory problems. And that is important because it affords us the opportunity to try to do meaningful clinical trials in a more rapid sense. Previous studies that looked at whether an intervention could delay or prevent the onset of Alzheimer's disease would take several thousands of participants followed over really a decade. Um, but now with this new technology that A4 is implementing, we can try to answer scientific questions more rapidly. So in A4, we'll follow people for three years, we'll be testing their memory consistently over that time, and we will randomly assign half of the people in the study to receive what we hope is a disease-modifying therapy, um, and the other half will get a placebo. And then we can measure over three years in a, in a relatively smaller population, a thousand patients across the continent, um, whether that intervention can actually slow the onset of memory problems. Uh, and if it does, then that's a major stride in, in the battle to find things that can delay the onset of dementia. Well, what I'm struck by in this particular time in a patient's life, in the, the, those that you're enrolling, is you're asking for a, a really early detection. Likely, this is earlier than anybody typically might be prepared to know this about themselves clinically. They, as you said, you've got to get them ahead of, of any kind of memory loss so you can start early with this intervention. But uh, how is the study here and all over the 60 sites around the USA, Canada, and Australia, how are your, I don't know, your genetic counselors, your yeah. geriatric counselors, how are they in the, the enrolling and in the actual uh, the study process uh, dealing with that very uh, that difficult disclosure to those participants. So again, I think you've hit on a really important part of the study. And one of the things that makes the study uh, so critical to the future of Alzheimer's research as well, and that is that this is something we, we really haven't done before. Um, in order to do the study in a safe way, a very uh, delineated process was developed uh, in large part by Jason Karlowish at the University of Pennsylvania and other colleagues. Um, and this process is meant to ensure that we can deliver this information in a safe way. The process includes, uh, obviously, education. Before people make this decision, we need to inform them. They need to understand uh, what it is that we know about this marker uh, of brain amyloid, um, as well as what we don't know. And that, that is equally important because uh, we're still learning. Um, we can't predict who with brain elevated amyloid will get cognitive problems or, or when. among those who will when. 
Um, so, so there is as much as we don't know right now, but you know, again, this is an important step toward being able to do these studies. So education is really the foundation of the disclosure process. There are also steps in place to make sure that um, only people who are equipped to handle this information are enrolling in the trial. How do and you find that out from about them? In, in uh, it's a, it's the really paper. a clinical process, an interview. Okay. Uh, obviously, there's a, a lengthy informed consent to be of in the course. study. Um, before we do the PET scans, there's other components of the process that involve a clinical interaction. Uh, we assess things like depression and anxiety and concern for, for getting Alzheimer's disease. Um, there's substantial interaction with research experts. Uh, at every site in order to make sure that we're only doing the PET scans in people who are, are prepared, who understand the implications, who understand what information we have and what we lack, um, and want to know, you know whether they have elevated amyloid. Uh, they then have a PET scan, uh, which is a, a form of neuroimaging that involves the injection into the blood of a tracer that shows us where and how much amyloid is present in the brain. Uh, and then they come back for specifically a visit to talk about the results of their scan. And again, the disclosure process is outlined uh, to include how to handle that conversation with participants in this study. Um, we make sure that this is still information that they want. We make sure that they are still prepared to receive the information. Uh, we make sure that they still understand the implications of what we're about to tell them. And then we tell them whether they are eligible for the study or not, that is whether they have elevated brain amyloid or not. But I and I, I must say that um, you know the study's been going on for several months now, and um, overwhelmingly my personal experience as an investigator in the trial, as well as what I've heard from other investigators, as you pointed out, around the world, um, is that the process is going very well. Um, it was carefully designed. It was a collaborative effort, and um, you know people are really handling the information quite well. Wow. Um, they are um, eager to learn this information, and we've done other studies about that, as have other investigators around the country that um, tell us that especially people who have a family history of this disease. That's and what are, I was going to ask. Are, are yeah. you getting a strong sort so of correlation with family members with AD? Th there's a correlation. Coming? You know, I think at the end of the study, we'll be able to better look at some of these things. But it's it's certainly not an exclusive uh, group to participate in the study. That is those who have family history. I've had people who lacked family history. I've had people who are I'm just really educated and savvy about the importance of Alzheimer's disease in, in this country at this time and want to help. Uh, and that's really what we need, people who want to help. Um, so, so it's not just people with family history, but uh, a, a wide swath of people who are coming. Um, but you know, regardless of why people are coming, it has been a very good response to the process, to the desire to be in the study, and to learning um, both that they they do or do not have elevated amyloid. In fact, uh, I've been struck by how many people are slightly disappointed to learn that they're not eligible for the study um, wow. because they really wanted to make that contribution and and uh, to learn that they didn't have brain elevated amyloid and and couldn't participate was was at least a mild disappointment for some of the people in, in my personal experiences. As part of the study. Well, I imagine that they were just starting to bond with you and they wanted to work with you. But once they leave that door, they're clicking their heels like, I'm off. I've got I'm I'm off this hook, possibly. Per perhaps, although I would say that, um, you know, 
one of the things that's going really well in the world of Alzheimer's disease research right now is that I think we are starting to win the PR battle and that we are getting the word out and we're breaking down some of the stigmas that existed a decade or two decades ago. People are uh, increasingly recognizing um, how frequent Alzheimer's disease is among the elderly, um, how, how expensive it is for families and for our country, um, and that we need to act. We need to do something about this. And I think that uh, the people who come to BNA4 uh, really want to make a contribution from their own standpoint. And frankly, I think they truly are disappointed that they, for now, um, because there will for be now, yeah. A5 or B6 or you know various other studies that we will need to do um, that will have equally important need for people who, who want to help find a way to stop this disease. Um, so for now, they're disappointed that they can't be in A4. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, that level-headed voice who's uh, in charge of this research of this harrowing disease, it's, this is Dr. Josh Grill, the new director for education at UCI's MIND, talking about the great show of industry at the center and the importance of clinical trials here on Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and in a research clinic uh, waiting rooms on the web at KUCI.org. Well, we have the, the information for people that want to follow up as they are hearing, leaning closer to the screen, this, the speaker here, uh, how to get involved in this. Um, I can post it on the podcast summary, but I'd also like to pass on it's, you can go to a4study.org and the email is brainlink at ucsd.edu. That's the one for anybody listening anywhere, any zone, any time zone around the globe. Uh, you can call 844-A-4-STUDY. And uh, we have here at the Gottschalk Plaza, just down the hill from where the radio station is, Deba Sultani, and her number is 949-824-5733. Actually, for, for folks oh. who are here in Orange County who are interested in the A4 study um, and want to come to UCI to participate, they can call 949-824-3250, uh, and that's for uh, Beatriz Yanis, who is the coordinator of this study at UCI. Um, and if they're interested in other clinical trials at UCI, I would refer them to the UCI MIND website, which is um, mind.uci.edu. That's M-I-N-D.uci.edu. Uh, I, I think that you know there's a, a variety of research studies going on right now at the MIND and the ADRC at UCI, and you know my research has been in part about who does and does not want to be in clinical trials and why that is. And I think it's really important that we make people aware uh, we're not going to solve this disease with one study. There are lots of studies going on. Um, for folks who are interested in, in taking a potential intervention or medication, clinical trials are the way to go. But there are also studies to understand what's happening in the brain of someone when they get older, as well as in people who have Alzheimer's disease. Those are neuroimaging studies and biomarker studies and memory testing studies. We have amazing neurologists, psychiatrists, geriatricians, neuropsychologists, research scientists at the mind. And so um, checking out the mind website is a great way for people to learn 
more about is there a study that might be right for them and you know our goal is to have a study for everyone who wants to be in one because again we're all in this together and we need more people to participate in research to find a cure for Alzheimer's disease. Well one thing I've noticed in some of the work you're posting online is that the uh, many if not all of the individuals enrolled in uh, at least UCI's research that you need a, they need to have a study partner. So some of these are spouses or their family members. So uh, that's a critical part because they're the ones that are cognitively uh, capable to, to usher, assist the enrolled participant in the study. So how is that working out? Yeah, that's actually a, a challenge in A4. Um, you know, we, we and the people who really were responsible for designing the study tried to make this um, requirement as uh, straightforward as possible. You do have to have a study partner to be in A4, and in most clinical studies of, of Alzheimer's disease or Alzheimer's disease prevention, a study partner is is defined as a person who knows you well enough to answer some questions about how you're doing cognitively and functionally. In A4 specifically, it has to be a person you have some form of contact with on a weekly basis, okay. and that can be in-person, telephonic, or even electronic communication. Um, but we've had people who couldn't be in A4 because they couldn't find a person they said that could fill that role. Uh, and that's a barrier to doing these types of, pardon me, to doing these types of studies. And it may be that in future studies we have to find um, alternative methods for doing that. But right now, many of the tools that we utilize in clinical dementia research, including prevention research really rely upon getting uh, information from an informant. Um, and, you know, we've done studies to, to show that sometimes that can, can be uh, uh, an introduction of variance depending on the quality of that informant. Um, it can certainly have implications to other aspects of the study, such as staying on medication, for example, or completing the study, which are all critical to answering the research question. Um, so this is a, a very important topic that we're actually delving further and further into from a research standpoint in, in my group. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to K UCI 80.9 FM in Irvine. And here on Ask a Leader, I'm talking with Dr. Josh Grill. We're talking about the specific clinical trial underway, and we'd like to move toward the general aspect of the uh, importance of clinical trials in general. And as he talked about, there's varying levels of commitment. You were talking about, Josh, that uh, with the study partner, some of them can be involved effectively remotely by phone, even with this the A4 study. Especially for A4, yes. Okay. Uh, I think we, you know, we've come up with ways to do some of these scales by telephone, um, and, and we do that as needed. I think um, you know, initially there's an importance to learning about the study and, and coming in and doing things like signing an informed consent, but um, our goal is really to make it as easy for people to participate as possible. Uh, and frankly, in A4, um, the number of visits that require an informant are very few. Um, this is a study that driven by the participant, not the study partner, but that requirement does exist. Well, yes, before we close uh, totally here, um, we've talked about how people can sign up for different kinds of studies and that they're going to continue to change or uh, there's more and more being added and there's different levels. There's people different kinds of qualifiers you want uh, in some of your studies, you need your um, your null set. You need to have people that don't qualify in terms of types of pathology. 
you need your your uh, yeah every good scientific experiment needs a control group right bro but the control group is not in the a4 study so in a4 the control group is the people who get a placebo so the That's comparison it. is between people who um, get the intervention who get the intervention versus get the placebo. There is a plan eventually to follow a group of people who do not have elevated amyloid and will not be given the medication, but that's uh, not yet initiated. So that's how folks you can follow in there with uh, and many different levels. Now for another way to follow along are there's a litany of, Events coming up. Last week was a terrific one. Randy Buckner spoke from from Mass General Hospital. And now, Josh, why don't you run down the many events folks can keep in their calendars, sure. uh, ending with the all-important annual meeting on October 2nd. Yeah, you bet. So I, I have to say that one of the things that drew me to UCI is the wonderful uh, interaction that the mind has with, with the surrounding community and Orange County as a whole. There's, it's just a great collaborative uh, feeling here. And um, we've enjoyed support from the community in a lot of ways. Um, one way the community can continue to support the, the faculty at UCI and the research going on here is to attend uh, the UCI Time of Your Life Gala, um, which will be on May 16th of this year. That'll be at the Hyatt Regency Newport. And if folks want to learn more about that, they can check out ucimindtimeofyourlife.org. Um, and as you alluded to, we have a really uh, wonderful conference that's held every year. Um, and this year's conference will be on the topic of healthy brain aging, and that'll be October 2nd, uh, 2015. And actually, I'll be uh, delivering one of the lectures at that conference this year, and that'll be at the Irvine Marriott. And to learn more about that conference, folks can check out the, the MIND website, again, mind.ucai.edu. And there's always the lectures to follow, uh, the, the Dean's Distinguished Lectures still coming up, Reverse Engineering the Brain's Cognitive Map, that's on March 30th, I see, and the Spring Meeting, the CNLM, you'll have to tell me which that means, uh, that is also coming up with um, the Office of Research on Women's Health that uh, Janine Clayton is going to be keynote speaking at. And then the there's an Allergan, just so people know there's a range, the Allergan Advancing the Frontiers of Human Neuroimaging Research Conference is at the end of April. That's going to also, will that be posted on the MIND website? Absolutely. Okay, so all those things are happening there. So I, we know how people can follow up then both with clinical trials underway. What's What are the... I mean, the, the age isn't necessarily a barrier because we have early onsets of dementia. So uh, what, I mean, when do people start thinking about getting involved with, with clinical research, clinical trials with you? Well, it's, uh, I don't think it's ever too soon to start thinking about it. For A4, you have to be between the ages of 65 and 85 to participate in the study. But, you know, there are new studies going on all the time for different ages, um, looking at things like healthy brain aging or risk factors for future cognitive impairment. For people who have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, dementia, clinical trials will typically uh, enroll people who are at least 50 or at least 55 years old, depending on the study. And they may or may not have an upper age limit um, for those interventional studies. So I think that, you know, more and more, we're recognizing that uh, research is needing to move earlier and earlier uh, in age and in life to understand just when this disease begins and just how early we can intervene to try to slow it down. So it, it's often a study-specific uh, question as to what the appropriate ages are, 
Um, but certainly we've seen more and more people in earlier stages of life being participants in research. Well, fine. Well, that is all the time we have. Professor Josh Grill here on Ask a Leader. He is the Director of Education at UCI Mind and with the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center leading us into what we all can do to contribute, whether it's ourselves or it's a study partner. We all have a role in helping them out. So we'll uh, thanks, Josh Grill, for being on the show today. Thanks very much for having me. I hope to come back sometime and talk about all the other great things going on at The Mind. You've got an open invitation. I'll have you right back. So thanks for, uh, for being on. We'll be right back after a short station break with journalist Scott Martell covering his newly published book, The Madman and the Assassin, The Strange Life of Boston Corbett, the man who killed John Wilkes Booth. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Uh, my next guest here, uh, what we're doing is we're going from one brain to the other today. And, and it's been nearly 150 years since... President Lincoln was assassinated, taking up that topic with a rarefied a tangent is my second guest today, Scott Bartell, who's penned an interesting investigative piece, his latest book, The Madman and the Assassin, The Strange Life of Boston Corbett, The Man Who Killed John Wilkes Booth, published by the Chicago Review Press. Scott's more than 30 years in journalism stems from the sports coverage of Wellsville Patriots High School Sports Column, news director for WCVF Campus Radio, the Jamestown Post-Journal, Rochester Times Union, the Detroit News, and finally, the LA Times. His editorial contributions currently appear in many of the nation's finest media outlets, including his own blog. He completed his bachelor's degree in political science at Fredonia State. He eventually made his home, Irvine here, where our own personal paths have crossed at Little League and local public school funding campaigns. Scott Martell joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Scott. Thank you. Glad to be here and good to see you. Good to see you again. Well, congratulations on, is it your fifth, your fifth yeah. book? Well, what was it about Boston Corbett? A hatter, preacher, soldier, failed farmer, that got your investigative juices and prose crafting talents going? I'm drawn as a, as a writer, as a journalist, to story more than anything else. Um, and what drew me to this story, after my last book came out, I was looking around for a new subject, a new topic, and hit upon one that would have involved a lot of travel, a lot of contemporary journalism, and decided that it just didn't work out financially to, to make that happen. So as I was discussing that with my agent and my editor at Chicago Review Press, Jerry Poland, uh, Jerry asked me if I'd ever heard of Boston Corbett, and I said, no, never heard of the guy. He says, well, he's the guy who shot John Wilkes Booth after he castrated himself. Not after, not, not Booth, after, uh, I'm sorry. after Boston Corbett did, yes. Yeah, yeah after exactly. Corbett self-castrated and then yes. several years later killed John Wilkes Booth. And just as a journalist, it's like you know, the, the radar started pinging. That's, that's, somewhere there's a great story in there. Right, right. It, it is fabulous. And uh, although Boston Corbett lived his he, as a preacher, he lived his theology very deeply and humbly. As your deft and thorough handling indicates, he is really way too inter interesting f to be just a simple caricature of a Bible thumper. Yeah, as I did the research uh, into the book, it, 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 
in, even in his own life, in his own times, uh, he was referred to as crazy Boston Corbett. So he just had this reputation nationally as, as being an odd duck. Um, and he, he did suffer from some mental illness. Um, I'm, that's not my realm, but it almost seems like it was paranoid schizophrenia or some variation of that. You know, he easily uh, took insult from people, uh, misconstrued things, uh, thought people were out to get him, trying to cheat him, all that kind of stuff. Uh, he also, early in his uh, working life, was a finisher of silk hats. And as part of that process, they used uh, mercury mixed with, with water into a liquid form and used that to sort of shape the hats. So he inhaled, you know, more than any recommended rec, uh, recommended right. level of, of mercury, which of course leads to to mental illness. Um, so he had a, a lot of those those you know problems sort of coursing through his life. But as I did the research, I began realizing there was a lot more to this guy, as there is to most people. Um, and you mentioned, you know, he lived his, his religious life. By these, by today's standards, he'd be considered kind of a religious zealot, a street preacher, you know, haranguing people if they took the Lord's name in vain, that kind of thing. But he also, uh, for a time, he was living in New York City in Manhattan. Uh, he, he would find people. He himself had uh, had uh, had sort of a collapse, a dr- an alcohol-related collapse, and was saved by some some street preachers. And that sort of got him back in the street and propelled the, the vast majority of his life. And so while he was living in New York, after he had you know, found Jesus and, and gone down that road, he would find people who had been like him, you know, drunks in the street, people without jobs, and he'd take them under his wing and bring them into his own apartment, get them sober, get them cleaned up, get them jobs, and then kick them out and go find somebody else to, to replace that. And he would, he would spend all of his own money on that. So he was living you know, hand to mouth in this quest to help other people recover from the problems that he had. And that was in 1858, 59, 1860. So, but his motivations were, uh, I mean, it wasn't this kind of a uh, it was a very altruistic kind of theology and sort of helping helping others out like himself and it was he wasn't sort of trying to make a larger movement for himself not like in that bible thumping that we know with the, with many zealots let's say amidst uh in our midst in these days but he was uh, he, there was a kind of a purity about it from the way you fleshed him out that uh you know he didn't uh it, it was a consistent sort of uh of a reflexive a reaction but uh, I don't I, I I think it's zealot is is only a part of it. It's just because of the way he, he the right. way you investigated his background. Yeah, his friends at the time um, sort of summed it up as saying that he thought that one it was possible for this is part of early Methodism or straight of Methodism. Right. He okay. thought he thought it was possible for someone to live each day each hour uh, like Christ would, and that's the way he wanted to to lead his life, and that sort of guided you know, most of his decision making. And that that's no caricature, and especially how right. what what decisions that he takes along the way that you really uh, so deftly put together, as I've mentioned. Well, how hard was it to track down all these sources? We feel like we're right there, uh, right walking along beside Boston Corbett. So how hard was it to dig up all these things? It, it's threaded like a historic fiction where you, we've got one scene after the next very well described. Well, thank you. Um, it was quite a challenge in, in different sections of his life. His early years are still a mystery to me. Um, since I finished the book and it's gone to press, I've learned a few other minor details about his early life that I wish I had known when well, I was writing the book. Can you tell us? No, nah, because some they're based on some of his research. We'll let him he'll unveil that. Okay. Um, but it's just just minor minor bits about his life. Um, but once he uh, sort of fell into the historical spotlight when he killed John Wilkes Booth. There was an incredible amount of media coverage at the time, and so a lot of reporters were going back and interviewing his friends. You know, some of the stuff was unreliable, so it took a lot of work to sort of you know triangulate the, the truth. Yeah, 
Um, but where the most interesting stuff came from was after he, in the 1870s, uh, he was in deep financial straits. Uh, there'd been a recession. Uh, nobody's buying silk hats anymore. He couldn't make a living as a preacher. So he decided to take a homestead out in uh, central Kansas, Cloud County, Kansas. And while he was out there, some friends who were federal, uh, f- uh, former uh, veterans also, uh, Union Army veterans, uh, suggested that he appeal to the government for a veteran's pension. And to do that, you had to submit all these affidavits about what you were like before, what happened to you during the Civil War. He survived five months at Andersonville Prison of the Notorious. We'll talk about that okay. in a little more detail. Yeah. So, so he went through all these, these tribulations, and all these people were writing affidavits saying, yes, we knew Boston then, and this is what he was like, and this is what he's like now. And then, uh, we'll probably get to this later, but he eventually disappeared. Uh, sorry to spoil the ending here. No, no, it's your book. We're trying to promote your book, Scott. I appreciate that. Um, But there was, we'll get into it a little bit later, I imagine, but there was an attempted fraud by somebody uh, standing in as Boston Corbett. And as part of the investigation into that, there were even more affidavits by old friends of his and letters to the the lawyer that was sort of leading that investigation. Um, So there's a lot of of good personal testimony in these very unusual kinds of records. So one thing I couldn't figure out uh, in terms of how you did your research, you would say something about the letter, his, the letter to him, was not available. But the, no, the his his letter was a. I'm trying to think of it. Yeah. It, was, it was counterintuitive. Is you'd think that the letter that went to him would be lost, but somehow that was your record and not right. the letter that he sent. Well, actually, it's not that counterintuitive because what he did is he kept letters he received. So how if he disappeared? How do you get his letters? Or did somebody else collect them? Well, so he disappeared. I don't know how to describe this succinctly. Um, he had gotten a job at the Topeka State House as a doorkeeper. Um, had a meltdown there, used his gun, huge standoff. Uh, he got jumped by some of the, the bailiffs, uh, hauled off to jail. The next day they gave him a lunacy hearing. He was deemed lunatic and sent to the Topeka State uh, Asylum. And he walked right from that a year later, which you can get into that story in a little bit if there's time. Um, so all of his possessions were still at his at his rental place his in Topeka and his homestead out in Cloud County. Okay. And the court appointed him a guardian. So the guardian collected all these possessions of Boston Corbett, which included the letters he managed to keep, which there were several hundred letters that, that Corbett kept himself. But the ones he sent are scattered all over the country. Right. Some of them are in the hands of private collectors. Some of them people may not even know that they have an interesting bit of history. Probably because they wanted to collect the letters that had some historic and monetary value because it, it goes back to the man who who right. shot John Wilkes right. Booth. So I want to walk us back in time, all sure. the way back um, that the uh, one thing I thought was very interesting, and I'm not sure if this is more broadly known to others, that John Wilkes Booth uh, himself, the, the, well, first there, I just wanted that there was an interesting, uh, it's a comparison, a juxtaposition is that the remarkable and selfless nature of Boston Corbett and the kind of coddled uh, individual that John Wilkes Booth was as a, the um, the son of a woman who'd lost many children. So John right. Wilkes Booth was the center of everybody's universe. So anyway, there's there's that sort of a juxtaposition. But I I, I was I found it fascinating that you explain how Booth, in his derision he directed toward President Lincoln, held up as a hero abolitionist John Brown. Yeah, it was pretty remarkable. Um, he thought Brown was admirable because he was willing to die for what he believed in. And I think that sort of rolled around in the back of his head as he was beginning. A lot of people don't realize that the assassination actually began as, as a, kidnapping a kidnapping plot. Right? right. So as he was rolling around those different plots, I think you know John Brown's experience was sort of in the back of his head. 
Okay. Yeah. He would give it all, so according to... So I'm wondering, while you're tracking down all of these leads that flesh out Boston Corbett, were there other conspiracy theories around the either the assassination of President Lincoln or or of John Wilkes Booth that, that you had to sort of say no 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 this is off track and yeah, but, yeah. so there must have been quite a few there there were quite a few yeah um, in fact the shortly after Booth was killed the theory went around that he hadn't really been killed and that oh. Corbett had shot somebody else or that Booth had shot himself or somebody else had shot uh, Booth because there was no body that was. Uh, there's no John Wilkes Booth sort of memorial anywhere. They had to, to sort of like o- Osama bin Laden. There, w- there will be no place for people to come and congregate. Well, that was the initial idea, but the, eventually they returned the body to the family. So there is a, a, a tombstone somewhere now. I think somewhere. it might be in Baltimore. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, but yeah, that they didn't want him to be, you know, the martyr for the South. So that, uh, so that. But about those, any conspiracy theories that you found fascinating? No, along they're the all way? they're they're actually more in the way than anything else because you'd see a lot of reportage uh, from that era about you know Booth being seen somewhere. You know, there was a guy in Enid, Oklahoma, who claimed to be Booth. So you had to sort of dig into those enough to debunk them and then sort of move along. I thought about putting some of those in the book uh, in the last chapter. But it just realized narratively that just sort of takes you off into a cul-de-sac that really is kind of irrelevant. Yeah. But yeah. it's interesting because in his time, Corbett was constantly putting up with complaints and accusations from people that he was lying about what he had done. And, you know, given his, his you know, quick rise of temper, that caused a lot of problems. I mean, more than once he pulled guns on people who accused him of, you know, not really killing Booth. Yes, he was always armed and, and reinforcing his faith yep. with, the, yep. with he, the end of the barrel. He, he also took um, his honesty as 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 deeply as you possibly can and anybody who challenged his honesty and integrity uh got a big rise out of him or somebody else lying themselves him catching right. them in a lie out comes the pistol or, right. or the fist or something like that well for those of you who've just joined us you're tuned in to ask a leader on kuci 88.9 fm in irvine where my guest is scott bartell veteran journalist currently with the la times and a blogger He's authored uh, the recently launched, we're, we're actually ahead of all the media outlets. I wasn't kidding. I said, uh, You're the very first one. Uh, I, right. I'm pretty happy to be that. Uh, the Madman and the Assassin, The Strange Life of Boston Corbett, The Man Who Killed John Wilkes Booth, as I said earlier, published by the Chicago Review Press. Well, we, we talked about um, this. There is a very selfless nature about Boston Corbett and He's he's sort of the man who uh, at the tobacco barn where John Wilkes Booth is holed up his last his last stand John Wilkes Booth, so uh, Corbett just sizes up in the moment it's this, this is now to to take out he's not he's not necessarily trying to take him out fatally but slow him down so he he does this but and he doesn't it's a recurrent theme he doesn't seem to really want to trade on that kind of notoriety even though he's He's in financial straits for so long. He's really it's it's very it's a very rare incident in a later instance where he actually does that. Yeah, and it was really interesting. Um, later on in his life, there's this one hilarious anecdote that's deep in the book, where he's in uh, Kansas in Cloud County, and yeah. a local preacher invites him to the church. They want him to to you know talk. And so he gets there and speaks for about a half hour, a rambling, loud hellfire and damnation uh, sermon. 
And everybody's kind of stunned. And then the preacher gets up and says, well, thank you, you know, Brother Corbett, but really wanted to hear you tell us about killing John Wilkes Booth. And so Corbett gave like a short version of that and, and then skedaddled. <laughs> so why, So can you sort out with the mind that you studied? So how is it all about his religion? And it's, like you said, living a, a, a life of, of Jesus's kind of purity that he just thought that trading on your uh, accidental kind of connection in a monumental uh, crime case uh, that just wasn't cool theologically. I yeah, I don't think it was quite that pure. I mean, he went to a lot of uh, Grand Army of the Republic reunions. That was the major veterans organization for the Union side. Um, he'd go to their their summer jamborees and you know do sort of the, the veteran speaking tour. So he wasn't really reticent about talking about it within that context because he he saw his place in history. But he was he wasn't making money off that. He's just associated with his brethren though. Yeah, so that's not tr- that's not trading on your influence. No, it, but they were covering his, his travel costs and giving him a little stipend when he got there. But but he wasn't going out of his way to do it. They were coming to him. But his preference was you know to talk about faith. Right. Exactly. So his prisoner of war detention. You. Uh, alluded to that. Well, I'd like to open that up at, uh, at the notorious Andersonville camp. And for people that were speed reading their Civil War history, that Andersonville camp was, it was a hellhole, to be sure. And uh, the most dense, I'm trying to think of the, the, the average, uh, the space of per person was 34 square feet per person. Or to, Something like to that, To look yeah. at the photos, though, they're, they're practically like stacked cords walking, walking dead uh, in this fetid camp around there and it really debilitated his health for the rest of his life. Yeah, it was really interesting in looking at the pictures from that. Um, as you mentioned, they're all just jammed together, you know, all bedraggled and starving. And I remember thinking at one point, it was like 30,000 men in there at one, at one point. And I remember thinking, this looks like the, the audience at a rock concert in which nobody's having any fun. I mean, it's just, it was that tight. Nobody's and, having anything. Yeah. And it was Food that, or water. Right. Was that, so imagine being that tightly packed. And that being how you were living for four or five months, and 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 definitely, and not knowing, and that right. th- there were trades, but that that were of prisoners, but they were very uh, infrequent. So there was, there right. was no uh, hope for many that were detained there. So yeah, until they closed it, most people left there dead. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it, it it did maim him for the rest of his life. It was it's I find it amazing that it didn't change uh, his. Faith and it's it's his faith is what helped him uh, be a survivor in that. Uh, in Definitely, yeah. He, he was telling people at the time when he was in Andersonville that God spoke to him and God was going to let him die. Yeah, and so that's I think it's from there and after that he got the uh, the the moniker the Little Glory God Man. Right, or Glory to like God that. Man. Yeah. So the, I I think that's very interesting. So, uh, it made him more the man. That we know him uh, from before the war, that uh, that detention is really uh, it reinforced he was, who he was. Re- exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it seems that um, like you are. Uh, I'm I'm going to ch- change the topic a little bit because of some of the editorials that you've been writing, Scott. You don't know where I'm going to come with this here, but it seems like you might be the one to write the definitive piece on Scott Walker. That you've been following him a little bit in Madison. Uh, the real scoop about this guy's motivations for taking down labor uh, within Wisconsin and beyond. Is that somebody else that you might be interested in for your next uh, idea? Yeah, probably not. I mean, uh, not that yeah, guy? Yeah, as He's too two-dimensional for your taste. No, not really. Um, as, as somebody who writes history books, I like to see a story end before I start 
deciding what's going to happen, and okay. he's still in the middle of his story. So Okay. Well, w- but I think the die has been cast about motivations, and that's going to sort of be a, a trajectory. It'll describe the trajectory he's on, and we'll, uh, I think those that aren't reading everything critically now, they're going to all later hit their foreheads and say, what were we missing in that? But it seems really pretty pronounced what's uh, what was being laid there. So um, I also want to give you a chance, because it looks like you are a community radio veteran. I, I don't know what your, um, can you give us your WCVF, uh, did you do a, um, a station ID ever as, as news director? No. Nope, you just, you just were never on the mic. You I, were was just, on the, I was on the mic. You were on the mic. Reading the news, yeah. Oh, reading so. the news. Okay. Well, I want to make sure that people know how to get a hold of your book. Are you going to be at UCI's bookstore, the Ant Hill, for any kind of book signings? No, or? We, haven't, we haven't planned anything yet. So far, the only book tour stuff is going to be in uh, Kansas, Illinois, and Michigan. Where yeah. the, the path of, of Boston Corbett right. was. Right. Okay. So, our, uh, and there are no descendants. As you said, he was castrated right. after his uh, distraught period following his wife's early uh, demise. Right. And so there's no dissent, so there, but there are history buffs on uh, both sides of the Mason-Dixon line that are yep. curious about it. I've already heard from, from quite a few of them. Already? Uh, yeah. What do they ask you? Uh, what do I know? What do yeah, you know? Yeah. So uh, we, I, I didn't really want to get you to say much about the, the end of the book. I want people to be leaning so close to, this, to their speakers that they're falling over and they want to get the book themselves so they can see uh, what goes on in the, the folding of the story People can follow you at your, your Twitter handle, uh, at Smartel, S-M-A-R-T-E-L-L-E. Correct. And the, your website that you keep at adequately um, populated, it's scottmartel.com. Right. And, and as I said, Martel is M-A-R-T-E-L-L-E. So I'm so glad that to have read the book, I recommend it. And I'm, I'm, I don't know if you brought in a few copies, folks, if, uh, for the fun drive. We'll have got um, an extra one here. We've yeah. got an extra one. We're going to put it on as a premium, The Madman and the Assassin, The Strange Life of Boston Corbett, The Man Who Killed John Wilkes Booth. A uh, parting shot, Scott Martell, about, let's say, to proto-investigative journalists. Always question why you think you know what you know. Perfect. That's on any kind of radio, right. audio, visual, printed, electronic, and all that. Okay, that's great. Well, do you have a, another book idea that in the back of your head? You're not going to tell us now, but you, th- there is one, I hope, coming. There isn't. I'm, I'm scratching around. I keep finding things that are, you know, this might be interesting. Then you dig around a little bit and you realize there's not enough material there to, to build a narrative around. So, so so I'm still scouting. Is there a preference, though, for things that happened about at least 80 years ago? No. In fact, my second book was about the post-World War II um, anti-communist, first of the anti-communist trials. That's right. Okay. So, well, I'm glad we got that advice about uh, for investigative journalism, and it holds true with community radio coverage, too. I'm, I'm always uh, scratching around, and I'm, I'm surprised people that still make themselves available after they know I scratch. So <laughs> that's, uh, but that's my role. That's my responsibility to keep some things covered that aren't getting the coverage for our, our especially local sort of things. So I know yeah, you're... You have to poke into the dark corners sometimes. So yeah. can you help me give a, a pitch to get people out to vote today? Uh, yeah, if you don't get out and vote today, you suffer the consequences. And look around the nation and see where that's got us. This, the, exactly. 
I want to thank you, Scott Martell. Thank you. With your fifth book here, The Madman and the Assassin, The Strange Life of Boston Corbett, The Man Who Killed John Wilkes Booth, as we move toward the 150th anniversary of the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you. Appreciate the interest. Well, absolutely. Thank you for listening. Happy St. Pat's Day, and more importantly, don't forget to vote. So weary started by daylight next morning light And Harry took a drop of the beer to keep my heart from sinking That's the Paddy's cue and Harry's up for drinking to see the lassie smile Laughing all the while at my curious how would set your heart A-bubbling asked if I was hurt The wages I required to lie was almost tired of the rock He rode to Dublin, one, two, three, four, five